You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Amen. Thanks, Joseph. Good morning, church. So glad you're all here. Good morning, church. (laughs) Um, I'm so glad you're all here. You made it to the future. Way to go. Gold star for making it to 2021. Um, yeah, it's good to be a clean slate, fresh year. I'm excited this morning to share the word with you. A new series we're starting called Battle Lions. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians chapter 6. We drove uh, 10 hours on New Year's Eve, so I did not stay up till midnight. I was excited to see my pillow. And. Uh, I won't even ask for a show of hands as to who stayed up till midnight. Because I know if you're a parent in the place, in the house, you were probably sleeping by like 9.30. So um, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to just heighten our awareness of the reality that we are in the midst of a battle. There's a battle going on right now that you and I are invited into. A battle that's real. And so there is no such thing as casual Christianity There's no such thing as boredom in Christianity. Um, There's no such thing as going through the motions or playing games in Christianity. This is a a matter that's serious, and it's a battle, as as, uh, the New Testament writers describe it. And so I want to bring us into that. In this new year, leading into the week of prayer, um, I believe it's really important that we we grapple and understand that that we graduate to a maturity as believers as well to understand the implications of this. Um, I had to learn, learn lessons the hard way growing up. I remember in middle school, I took my first job uh, bussing tables at a assisted living retirement center and a great first gig um, in middle school. I worked with a, a kid that I went to school with though in, in the middle school, pu- public schools. In elementary school and in middle school, we went to school together. He was always kind of a troublemaker. I was a kid that would be shooting his mouth and whatnot. And uh, we worked together, for better or for worse. And uh, one day after work, we were waiting out behind the kitchen. Uh, outside, I was actually waiting for my ride. And he was going to ride bike home. And he, we started shooting the breeze. And he started telling me about his new interest in professional wrestling. Right? <laughs> God save his soul. That's right. Uh, and uh, he was telling me uh, how he had learned to do the sleeper hold. And uh, so I was, you know, it's in middle school, I was interested and uh, started kind of nervously laughing. And he asked, well, can I try it out on you? And you have to know, I, I was kind of an introverted, pretty shy kid. And so I didn't know what to say except for, uh, yeah, sure. I was thinking it was all fun and games. Next thing I knew, this kid had his arms around my neck. And that's all I remember. I actually woke up behind the dumpster. He drug me behind the dumpster and left me there. I woke up. I woke up from behind the dumpster and I saw him riding bike off in the, into the distance. And so what started as fun and games, what started as kind of laughs, even if it was a little nervous, was really serious. And then I realized uh, this, this was more than what I had bargained for. And I believe many believers are kind of aimlessly wandering in their life, kind of thinking this is all just kind of fun and games. This is just a, a casual thing. And next thing they know, the enemy has them in a chokehold, has them in a sleeper hold. And they realize it's serious, oftentimes when it's far too late. And I want us to be attuned. I want us to have our heightened, uh, heightened awareness 
of what God is doing in us to graduate to a level of maturity in the Lord that we understand that we're in the midst of a battle, a spiritual battle that's real. So before we get to Ephesians chapter six, what we see this pattern played out throughout the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul. Paul uses this imagery to describe the kingdom of God in the context of a battle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So that, that is what we are in the midst of. We're in the midst of a true battle, a spiritual battle, not a physical one, not of flesh and blood, but of spiritual dynamics. And so what we're talking about in the next several weeks of prayer, of the word of God as the sword of the spirit, as immediate obedience, these things, these, these battle lines of the kingdom are real and they matter. And God is enlisting you this morning. He's enlisting you to, to not sit passively back, but to rise up and to be the people of God in this hour. So let's look at Ephesians chapter six, verse 10. Let's pray before we read his word. Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for um, giving us a grace to endure 2020 uh, with, with joy in our hearts, with peace, with provision, your abundance, abundant provision. And we, we look with expectation at 2021 before us uh, with hearts of faith and believing that the, the best is yet to come for us as individuals, as our, for our families and for the household of God here in Ames. We believe it. And Lord, I pray this morning, there would be an urgency uh, that rises up in our hearts to sense the reality of the implications of the battle that we live within. I pray your word would come alive to us right now. Jump off the pages into our heart in your, in your name, amen. Let's read this, uh, Ephesians chapter six, verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is not often talked about in the church, but these things really do exist in this present age. There is a spiritual uh, realm, a spiritual dimension that exists. And God has enlisted you as a child of God to be a part of a spiritual battle. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. God has fully equipped you that you may be, able, may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that my words may be, or that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak." And Paul was familiar with the, the seriousness of the battle as he was a front lines worker, oftentimes costing him um, time in prison, persecution, real physical persecution. And he was enlisting an army of believers, 
of which are, are still uh, on the earth today. That's you and I. He's list, enlisting us to join him in this epic battle. You know, Jesus made no questions about it. The, the enemy's will for your life is to steal, kill, and destroy. So we should take that seriously. We should take that to heart. That's a, that's a real uh, revelation that we can understand that, that the, the, the enemy's will for your life is to steal, to kill, and destroy. And so as we take a look at the, the forceful language that Paul uses here in Ephesians chapter 6, I want to draw our attention to, where, uh, to, to how he kind of encapsulates it all in verse 18. As he goes through the armor of God, he brings it to verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And then he goes on to say how we should be praying for the saints, for the household of God as well. He encapsulates all of the armor of God, the, the, the way that we are equipped in God as a child of God, with the, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, with the, the sword of the spirit, all these things, how it's all encapsulated in this place of prayer. And that is the first battle line that I want us to talk about this morning. It's the battle line of prayer. It's the front that we fight uh, at in this spiritual battle, and it's called prayer. Prayer is action in the kingdom. Pastor Tony said it earlier. It's a mantra we say often around here because we believe it to be true. And the misconception oftentimes, and the fruit is in, in our actions, but the, the, the oftentimes thought regarding prayer is that prayer is passive, that prayer is inaction. When in reality, the spiritual truth is prayer is action. Prayer is how things move forward in the kingdom. God in his sovereignty, God in his wisdom has chosen to use people like you and I to carry out his victory on the earth. So we fight from a place of a victory that's already been accomplished through the cross and the resurrection. But now we become torchbearers of this victory being carried out on the earth, of justice being carried out, moving the, the um, territory of the enemy backwards. So prayer is action in the kingdom. That's why Jesus said, can you not pray for one hour? And some of us are like, no, I can't, Jesus. He says, watch and pray that you won't fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says, watch and pray. It's impossible to pray with eyes wide open and believe that this is some passive, inactive, religious gesture. Instead, the, the language that Jesus uses when he says watch and pray is this spiritual watchfulness, spiritual attentiveness, spiritual alertness to what God is doing in that moment, that our prayer really does matter. So prayer is action. So there's, I'm very ambitious this morning. There's a lot I want to unpack uh, to really usher us into the week of prayer. As Paul begins to help us understand the spiritual battle that exists, he uses this language of the tactics or the strategies or the schemes of the enemy. And I want to unpack what I believe are, are three schemes of the enemies from a scriptural standpoint. He says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the uh, rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want us to be attuned and aware that the enemy really is scheming to steal, kill, and destroy in your life. He really is. And so he has certain uh, strategies and schemes that he carries out uh, that scripture has revealed to us that I want to unpack this morning so that, that it can be a call to prayer. Verse 11 says that the reason he wants us to be equipped with the armor of God 
and so, we're, so that we're able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the first scheme of the enemy that I want to, to unpack, I want to define for us, is the scheme of deception. Deception. The enemy, Satan, and his, his army of demons, one of their, their chief weapons is deception, the, 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 the tactic of lies, and planting seeds of lies in our hearts. From the very beginning, the enemy has been planting these lies in the hearts and minds of, of humanity. He is the deceiver. He is the father of all lies. And so one of the, the, the enemy's primary tactics is to plant these questions in our hearts that, that allow us to question or open the door for us to question very self-evident truths that are before us that begin to, to create these huge cracks in our foundation that begin to plant seeds of confusion and chaos. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul tells us that in these last days, the work of the enemy will be categorized as wicked deception because people will refuse to love truth and be saved. You would think that truth would be attractive naturally and that we would all just cling to truth. But the subtle thing about, the tricky thing about deception is it's deceiving. That's right. Deception is deceiving. No one, no one overtly goes out one day and says, today I'm going to be deceived. Instead, subtly over time, through seeds planted by the enemy, we begin to embrace a deception. We begin to embrace a lie. We begin to actually be appalled and opposed to truth. We begin to embrace lies because they're attractive and they're seductive. That is deception. And it's one of the enemy's chief tools 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, these times in which you and I live, all the, all the time post the resurrection since the birth of the church, we call this moment in time, this dispensation of time, to be the last days, the last times. In these last times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of, teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So this is the scheme of the enemy, is deception. And our, our weapon against, uh, against it, the battle line that God has, is inviting us to, is prayer. That's how we combat deception. It starts in the place of prayer. So why should you pray? Why should there be an urgency in our hearts to pray? It's to combat deception. And now there's, there's two levels to this, this prayer combating deception, and one is individual. I believe you have a mandate upon your life to be vigilant, to fight against deception. And you do that by praying that, that truth would be preeminent in your life, that truth would be attractive to you. You pray that over yourself. You, you begin to pray that, that God would give you a discerning spirit, that God would give you humility, that God would give you a repentant heart to turn from error, to turn from from, uh, from lies and deception of the enemy. That's what you pray over your life. From that, you, you begin to pray that over your kids. Imagine how your life would change if you began to pray that, that sort of bold, forceful prayer over your kids. That God, protect them. Protect their minds from deception. Protect their minds and their hearts from the lies of the enemy. 
God, lead them towards truth. Give them a humble heart. Give them a repentant heart to turn towards you every time. Pray that over your spouse. So that's, what you, that's how you start combating deception is you start in your sphere over yourself and over your sphere of influence, the people you love dearly. But I do believe as the church of Jesus Christ, we have a mandate to combat deception for our generation. You know, God has chosen to place you on the earth in this moment in time. That's not happenstance. That's not um, by chance. That's by God's preordained plan that he chose to put you on the planet on purpose right now in human history. And therefore, as a child of God, you have a responsibility to fight in this battle. And generationally, right now, the enemy is using this, this tactic, this scheme of deception. And we as the church, and this week, we'll be praying this uh, over, our, over, over our city and over our nation, Tuesday and Wednesday, that God would empower the church to be a tool to lead people towards truth. And we have that that responsibility, that mandate upon us on a generational level to pray and combat deception. Right now, the enemy is planting these seeds of deception in people's hearts. In our generation, people questioning some of the most self-evident truths, like the value of human life, of unborn children. I just saw a report as we wrapped up 2020 that the, the death toll of abortions in 2020 was 47 million. 22% of pregnancies now ending in abortion in America. And that should, that should shake the church. That should, that should wreck us. That that's happening on our clock. That's happening, that's happening on our time. God has placed us on the planet in this moment in time. You know, even if someone were to embrace a, a, a worldview of scientism, the idea of the slaughtering of the unborn doesn't even fit that paradigm. It would be for the, 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 the good of a species, even from that secular worldview. So that's what I'm saying is the most self-evident of truths are being, um, are being aborted, pun intended. Other questions or other self-evident truths being questioned in our generation that God created a man and a woman unique that those things can be celebrated. God created a man and he created a woman and those things are unique and they can be celebrated and God has created for them to come together beautifully and uniquely. Those truths are under attack. That morality is knowable, is testable and is necessary for society to function. So these are the truths that are currently under attack and I'm telling you, our primary battle is not in the ballot box. Our primary battle starts in the place of prayer because what happens is, is people's hearts begin to be awakened to truth. And all of a sudden, God begins to soften people's hearts. Holy Spirit begins to draw people to himself. People begin to repent and turn. We begin to see a sweeping revival sweep across our nation. And all of a sudden, truth becomes attractive because the grace of God is being poured out across the nation. So that's how we combat deception. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote, you should vote. But that's always, to me, a last resort when we have to legislate this stuff. Second, second scheme of the enemy is disease. Disease. Sickness. From the beginning, since the curse, since his 
the, in, the inception of his uh, deception upon humanity. The enemy has been using disease and sickness to ruin our lives. And so I want us to rightly attribute to the enemy what is from him and rightly attribute to God what is his. And way too often people attribute sickness and disease to God as though God is the author of sickness and disease. And I think the, the biggest reason we, we, we grapple with this dynamic of how to, how to attribute blame of sickness and disease is because we pray for people and they're not always healed, am I right? It's because our loved ones, we watch them and we see them and some of them suffer with pain. Some of us ourselves, we face sickness and disease in a real way. And a simple prayer doesn't necessarily make it all go away. So what's going on? The reality is we're in a battle. We're in a battle and one of the enemy's chief schemes, tactics, to bully us, to destroy us, to tear us down is disease and sickness. So I wanna set the record straight. We should stop questioning the character of God when it comes to disease and sickness. You know, from the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, people have been questioning the character of God when it comes to sickness and disease. Both Job and his friends got this wrong. When, when Job was inflicted with sickness, who was it that inflicted him with the sickness? It was the enemy. Yes, God allowed it in his sovereign wisdom, but God is the one, his, his will for our life is life and healing and health. And the enemy is the one who inflicted the sickness. Whenever we have big, big questions like this, theological, philosophical, because I'm not saying there's easy answers for everything in this regard, I think it's always important that we start with what's most obvious. And so if, as we look towards the gospels, Jesus being the, the, the full revelation of the Father, he says, I and the Father are one. Anytime Jesus addresses sickness, he attributes it to the enemy. Never once does Jesus attribute sickness to, to God the Father. Every time for him, it's in the realm of this is from the enemy. And he rebukes it or, or heals the person or sets them free. For, for in Jesus' mindset, in his paradigm, it's always oppression from the enemy. Every single time. You cannot find a single verse where Jesus says, you know, I can't pray for you. I can't heal you. It's actually the Father's will that you suffer in sickness. Never once does he say it. So I think that should impact our theology. That should impact the way in which we live as children of God. Is taking Jesus' lead. As we take that understanding and we move our, ourselves through the New Testament, we see that the New Testament norm was sufficiency of the cross. That was the New Testament norm. That if the cross was to, to set, um, set things right, to conquer the curse, then it was also sufficient for sickness, both for salvation and for healing. Jesus told us in Mark 16 that these signs will follow you. That's you, that's believers that we lay our hands on the sick and they will be healed. And for, too often, or for far too long, the church has shirked her responsibility to simply pray for the sick. James chapter five, Jesus says, are any of you sick? Come to the elders, present yourself to the elders. They'll anoint you with oil. They'll lay their hands on you. You may rise up and be healed. First Peter chapter two says, as by his stripes, we are healed. It's like the, the truth of God's word is being given to the church and we, we, uh, we hide behind these philosophical questions, these theological questions, instead of responding with childlike obedience. 
This is a scheme of the enemy. So we are called to pray. We are called to combat sickness and disease by laying our hands on the sick and seeing them healed. We aren't called to know all the facts because frankly, we couldn't handle all the facts. All the spiritual dynamics that go into why some people are healed and why others are not, we couldn't handle it. It would crush us. Instead, we're called to trust him in faith and pray for the sick. A while back, we prayed for a young lady that was in the hospital. That same day, she was in dire straits, and that same day she was released from the hospital. And obviously, we, we celebrate those testimonies. But sadly, just a few weeks after that, she relapsed, and she landed herself back in the hospital. In the natural, you can begin to question everything. You can say, well, what happened? Was my prayer not effective? Maybe it was all Maybe it wasn't real. Maybe it wasn't authentic. But what happened? And you could just begin to go down that spiral downward. Or you can remember Ephesians chapter six. Remember, this is a battle. And the essence of a battle sometimes is two, two steps forward, two steps back. Two steps forward, one step back. It's a battle. And so, of course, the enemy would come at us again using a similar tactic. We were recently hanging out with some friends this weekend New Year's Day, not New Year's Eve, because you got to sleep on New Year's Eve. But New Year's Day, in just sharing testimonies, I was reminded of a testimony of a, of a dear friend who he's now a pastor in Illinois, but a while back, he, he actually suffered with progressive um, uh, multiple sclerosis, MS, and had digressed to the point that he was um, bound to a wheelchair, a motorized wheelchair. He suffered in pain for, for a number of years. But faithful to the Lord, loved Jesus. He had been a car salesman, but he had to completely stop working altogether because he was in so much pain. Over this period of suffering for a number of years, he did what a child of God is called to do and receive prayer for healing, to continue to keep his eyes fixed on Jesus, to attribute sickness where it rightly belongs, which is it's from the enemy. Years like this. At this point, he was on 16 different medications. The doctors were telling him at this point that within a year or two, he'd be confined to a nursing home for the rest of his life. At this time, he was in his 30s. Well, he went to church one Sunday morning and the pastor said, I want to invite you all back to Sunday night service. I really have faith that tonight, God is going to restore what the enemy has stolen for some. And when this, when this pastor spoke that scripture, the, enemy, the Lord wanted to restore what the enemy had stolen. There's a, just a, a seed of faith that was planted in his heart. That, that was for him. That he was rightly attributing his MS from the enemy, not from God. And that the Lord's work would be about restoring and setting things right. And so he came that Sunday night. He came in his motorized wheelchair. And something happened during worship. They, he didn't even pre, the pastor didn't even preach a message. He stopped worships early and he just started to ask people to pray for each other. And during worship, he knew that he was healed. And he stood up, <laughs> he started to raise his hands, not even really fully understanding what was going on right now, but just all of a sudden being able to do it. He, he walked up to the front. He walked away from his wheelchair up to the front. He knelt down and just began to bawl and people gathered around him, began to pray for him. 
The Lord then uh, spoke a word in his heart. I want you to run up. This is a large sanctuary. I want you to go and run up the sanctuary stairs, up the balcony stairs. So, well, before, outside of his wheelchair, he'd be shuffling like this and shaking. All of a sudden, he, he walked over to the stairs. He ran up three at a time up the stairs. And the Lord didn't tell him to do this, but he did it again. He did it twice. And the whole place was just erupting. To this day, he's able-bodied, he's strong. He's actually pastoring in Illinois right now. He served as one of our presbyters here in Iowa a few years back. But like the questions for some of us that are more analytical, we, we ask, why didn't God heal him after 10 prayers? Why didn't God heal him after 20 prayers? Why not after 50? Why was it that night? I don't know. But what if he wouldn't have gone that night? What if he would have stayed home? What if he wouldn't have received prayer that one last time? That's on us as the people of God to do what we are told as children of God because we're in a battle. We're in a battle, people. So let's rightly attribute to, what, to the enemy what's his and sickness is of the enemy. We're gonna do what Jesus tells us to do. We're gonna pray for the sick. We're gonna combat this scheme of the enemy in prayer. Third is this. Third is division. Division is a, a tactic of the enemy that we think of normally just in the realm of the natural, but actually most of the context of what Paul talks about when he's talking about the spiritual battle is in regards to division in the church. People that are causing problems and disruptions in the church, causing chaos and confusion, by planting seeds of division. And he attributes that to the enemy. I think this is really important. Not because we don't sometimes have to set people straight and, and um, speak truth boldly to people. But I think too often we, we, we create schisms or divides in the body that don't belong there. Jude chapter 18, or sorry, there's not 18 chapters in Jude. It's one chapter. So Jude, verses 18 through 21 this is what he says. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who's ca who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So the tactic to fight against this division and confusion planted by the enemy, planted by people devoid of the spirit. We combat it by building ourselves up in the place of prayer. So there is a battle, and the enemy loves to plant seeds of division, making us enemies, creating this divide where we demonize other people, where we, we say we, there's no way we could work alongside those people. Those people are broken and wrong, and I believe the enemy loves division because in a sense he wins twice. In one sense, you know, he gets removed from the mantle of being considered the enemy because all of a sudden we make somebody else the enemy. And then secondly, we get off mission. All of a sudden we become inwardly focused. We, this cancer has started in the body. And instead of keeping our eyes on the main thing, on the mission before us, we turn inward. And so for the enemy, he loves it because he wins twice. And we combat 
the scheme of the enemy of division through prayer. I remember a number of years ago, I had a lead pastor that came to me and he sat down in my office and I guess there was disagreements beginning in the church and division, honestly, seeds of division being planted in the church. And he began to bring me up to speed on it and he said, so whose side are you on? I said, um, I didn't know there were sides and I'm not picking sides. <laughs> I refused to answer him on that. As soon as the church has digressed to that point of picking sides, it's a no-win deal. It's a lose-lose situation. The enemy has won at that point. I believe God is calling us. You know, the, the illustrations that Paul uses in the New Testament regarding the church are that of a body. So how can a body be divided to, fight, to fighting against itself? God's will for us is that we be united, that we'd be one. Now, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not always just a, a sing-songy piece where we sit around and hold hands and sing kumbaya. No, peace can be fought for. There can be a, a, a conflict that results in peace, and a peace that's fought for. But that is God's will for his church, is that his church would be united, would be uh, would have a peace that resides in it because we were willing to uh, be unified in, in the things that matter the most. And so we need to fight for unity. We need to fight for oneness as the body of Christ and combat this scheme of the enemy, which is division. So I say all that and there's still a little bit more I wanna say um, to bring us into this week of prayer. This week of prayer has become such a, a key catalyst for us moving into a new year. We've seen over these weeks of prayer, I remember several, my first year being pastor, 2017, uh, nobody came to week of prayer. It was just me and my family, mostly. Um, but the following year, over 100 people joined us almost every single night. As this place was filled, kids uh, gathered downstairs and were discipled in the things of prayer as well. And we began to see God use these weeks as a catalyst for the rest of the year, to set the tone of expectation, of faith, to believe God for the best. And so I believe this year is the same. And I, I say all, all the more coming out of 2020, do we need this week of prayer? And so there's gonna be a progression throughout this week that you'll see unfold. We'll pray first for our church. Monday, Tuesday, we'll pray for our city. Wednesday, we'll pray for our nation. Thursday, we'll pray for the nations. Uh, and Friday, we'll have a big celebration and hear what God speaks to us. We'll celebrate through water baptisms, through Thanksgiving. It's going to be amazing. But the tone, I really do feel, and I was sharing this with Pastor Tony over the weekend, I really do feel like the tone for this year is meant to enlist us in this spiritual battle. I really do believe there's, there, there's going to be an urgency this year. In urgency to the reality that our prayer matters. That we don't just do this because we've done it. We don't just do this because we've done this now for the last four years, but no, we do it because our prayers matter. And this is the way God has called us to participate in his kingdom, is to be a part of the spiritual battle. And we, 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 we fight from a place of the battle already being won. But we, begin, we get to be these ones that carry out the battle. 
So here, are, as the worship team comes, here are three things I want us to know about prayer, leading us into the week of prayer. Because sometimes when we, we get into uh, talking about prayer in the context of a spiritual battle, people can get weird. I'm just going to be honest. And I don't want that to happen for us. I want us to take seriously what Paul says here in the New Testament and in an authentic way, allow it to lead us into breakthrough into what God has for us next. Firstly, prayer magnifies God. And so prayer, specifically in the context of a battle, doesn't magnify the enemy, it magnifies God. And too often people put the focus when it comes to a spiritual battle on the enemy. And they kind of prop him up and they give all this attention to calling him out in all these specific ways and territorial spirits. And we don't need to do that. The primary focus in this spiritual battle of prayer is on God and magnifying him. Because that's what begins to equip us with a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness is that place of prayer that then begins equipping. Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6 he said, Be strong in the Lord. He says, don't, you don't need to write out all the things that the enemy is doing and take all this time to call out the enemy by name. No, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So prayer doesn't have to be speculative. We're, we're coming from a place of understanding and revelation and we're exalting God and increasing our faith through prayer. So prayer magnifies God. Second, prayer initiates things unseen. Prayer initiates things, things unseen. And you just have to take this by faith from a scriptural standpoint that when you pray, things happen. And I don't have time to get into it uh, as much this morning, but check out Daniel chapter 10. Both Daniel chapter nine and Daniel chapter 10. Because it's there you get uh, like a, a backstage view of what happens when you pray. In, in Daniel chapter 10, an angel appears to Daniel and says, right when you prayed, I, the word was sent. I was sent. But for 21 days, this angel was resisted by demonic forces. He called him the prince of Persia. He was resisted for 21 days. And finally he overcame because he prayed, because Daniel prayed. Yeah, that's one rare glimpse that we get at what happens behind the scenes. Really the only glimpse but you have to know as a child of God that things are happening in the unseen realm that you'll never know. You just have to believe that, it ha that, that prayer is, is initiating things, that we are really wrestling with spiritual forces in the unseen realm. And thirdly, know that prayer is our place of authority. Know that prayer magnifies God. Know that prayer initiates things unseen. And thirdly, prayer is our place of authority. You have to know that. This is the place where you are most fully in tune and most fully alive to who you are created to be as a child of God. It's in that place of prayer. In that same passage in Daniel chapter 10, the angel talks to Daniel and he says that it's because you are loved and it's because you are righteous that I came. So you can have confidence that in Jesus, you are loved and you are righteous. And therefore there's an authority upon you to pray. You don't have to come in there with your head down low and in, like in shame and condemnation. Now you are loved and you are righteous in Jesus. And so you have this authority, this unction in your heart to pray boldly, to pray confidently. And you can know God's will regarding a lot of things. 
that it's his will to seek and save the lost, that not one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. You can know it's his will to, see, to, to, to heal the sick. If you'd all stand in this place, I want us to sing this song. Um, this, is how I, this is how I fight my battles. But I want us to respond to Jesus first. I believe God is catapulting, catapulting us into the week of prayer. He's setting us up. God is enlisting you. He's enlisting you in this battle to pray, to be vigilant, to be alert, to have an urgency in your hearts, to not be a spectator, to tear down strongholds and stand against the enemy. If you'd all bow your heads and close your eyes, I want you to respond to God right now. He's calling you to be enlisted in his spiritual battle. So would you respond to him? Say, God, I'm yours. I repent of like a lack of urgency. Say, I'm yours. I'm yours, Jesus. We declare this morning that prayer is action, Jesus. And in any way that we've shirked our responsibility, Lord, we repent this morning. We repent, God. Any way that we've kind of, in a kind of laissez-faire, lackadaisical way, meandered through this life, God, we repent right now. You're calling us. And I believe that being enlisted in the battle is a mark of maturity for a believer. Where all of a sudden now you, you don't have to be hand-fed everything, but you take some personal responsibility to be a player in this spiritual realm, in this spiritual kingdom. And so we say yes this morning, God. We say, here I am. God, use me. Secondly, if you keep your eyes closed and your head bowed, if you're here this morning and you need to start a relationship with Jesus, you need to get your life right with God, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that this morning. If you're joining us online, you can do that as well, right now in your own home, wherever you are. There's actually a number that'll appear on the screen. If you wanna pray this prayer of salvation, you want us to follow up with you, you can text us at that number. But if that's you this morning, you want to start a relationship with God, would you raise your hand? I want to know who I'm praying for. I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. I just want to know who I'm praying for. Is there anybody? And like I said, for those joining us online, you can text that number. If you raised your hand or even if you didn't, or if you're joining us online, you want to pray this prayer of salvation. We pray a prayer like this. Lord, this morning, I come to the end of myself. I realize my need for you. I realize that you're the only answer. You are my savior, you're my Lord, the perfect one who took my place on the cross. This morning, I surrender myself completely to you. I place my faith in you as my sufficiency, as the only answer, as the one who forgives my sins, who makes things right, who sets me free. I'm gonna follow you from this day For the rest of my life, no turning back, Jesus. 
I'm gonna follow you. In your mighty name, amen. Let's give those that pray to prayer a huge hand. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.